This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. series uh, called Divine Sex, uh, which actually is uh, taken from a a title of a book by a guy called Jonathan Grant, Divine Sex. Uh, I've just been reading that this week while I've uh, been unwell and um, found it really helpful, so I'd like to recommend a book. There was a guy who who did, went busking uh, in the uh, L'Enfant metro station in DC, Uh, and um, he... uh, he kind of wore, was, didn't look anything special. He wore a, 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 a Nationals a baseball cap, some jeans, baseball boots. Uh, it was a kind of in the bu- busy rush hour. And he put out his cap and uh, so he put out his, his violin case and took out a, a violin, looked a pretty old violin and started, started to play. And, um, and people just wandered on by. Uh, no one really stopped to listen. Um, uh, I think the only person who stopped to listen was a young child who's, uh, and the mother would pull them away, come on, uh, we're in a rush. And, and basically, at the end of the 45 minutes that he'd played there, he, he picked up his cap and he had uh, $32.17 in the, um, in the cap. Nothing unusual about that. What was unusual was that the guy uh, is a, uh, a violinist called uh, Joshua, B- Joshua Bell. And he normally plays... Uh, in huge symphony orchestras. The, the violin he was playing was a three and a half million pound Stradivarius. And, um, and the, the two days before, he played at the Boston Symphony Hall where the cheapest, cheapest tickets were $100. And it was set up by the Washington Post as an experiment. It was set up by the Washington Post as an experiment to say, uh, how does context affect what we see as valuable or beautiful or significant. Because what he played that morning in the metro station, as all the kind of office workers and government workers, you know, highly intelligent DC workers, walking past, what, what he was playing was the same music that he played two days earlier in the Boston Symphony Hall. Nobody noticed Everybody walked past. The educated crowd were embarrassed. Those that gave him money did it almost like, well, poor guy, he obviously can't make a living. It seemed like the only person that really understood what was going on was the kid. He wasn't constrained by the outside culture, but saw this is something good to listen to. Actually, what was really interesting, the Washington Post kind of, this is in 2007, in January, they actually printed an article the following week and said, Actually, he's going to come and do a free concert in the Metro Hall at Longfont Station. Uh, you can come for free. Guess what? Absolutely heaving. Absolutely heaving. He had to close the station. And it's really interesting. And, and Jonathan Grant, in his book, Divine Sex, tells that story. And he says, it's funny how context decides what we feel is beautiful and valuable. And we're talking about 
about sex and marriage in this series. And actually, what is interesting and what I want to say this morning is that context really seems to make such a huge difference that sex in our society, uh, I, I want to suggest, has, has lost its context. It, it's contextless. It, it floats around at the whim of whoever. Uh, and it's lost it, its anchorage. It's lost its context. It's progressively been removed from the context that gives it essential beauty and meaning. And so what I want to try and do this morning, uh, two weeks ago I talked, it was all about culture. This week it's kind of the Bible story of sex and marriage. Next week it is LGBTQ+. These are people, not issues. So all the big stuff, you think, oh my word, is he going to talk about that? That is all into next week. And, and there's, there's times when I'm telling this story where we could double-click and say, okay, let's go into that and let's talk about that. And there'll be hints and you think, why isn't he talking about that? Because I, don't, I want to just take time to run through the context. So that's what we're trying to do this morning. So I'm just going to pray and then hopefully you'll be with me and God will be with me and we'll go to work. Father, we just pray that you would reshape our thinking. So where sex has been is a drift looking for some place, some identity, some home, that you would help us to root it, not just in human marriage, but in the huge, grand story of your love for us. Lord, we pray that we'd find it there, married or single, happily married, divorced, whatever our circumstances, widowed, we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would find our ultimate identity we find our ultimate longing in that relationship that you have with us as your people. Amen. So we're going to go into Genesis uh, chapter 1 and 2 and 3, just a little bit of verses. Just to, to, you might think, oh my word, I'm already switched off. Uh, you know, Genesis, like, I, I can't go into that because, you know, clearly God didn't make the world in seven days. You know, sorry, I, you've already lost me. Um, you know, what, you're going to talk about talking snakes and you're going to talk about magical apple or magical fruit trees, and you know. But actually, it's interesting. The more I have studied, for twenty or thirty odd years, I've studied Genesis, and even got asked to to to, to training uh, to kind of pastors and, and and training pastors on Genesis. The more I've dug into those stories, the more I think they they profoundly tell us about the nature of human condition. So if you're struggling with Genesis and you think, I can't do it, then I'd, I'd, I'd ask you just to suspend that and, and let the story do, let the story and the narrative of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 do what it's designed to do, which is root you in your world. That's what it's trying to do. It's not a scientific manual or a manual about talking snakes or trees. It's trying to root you in your world and trying to help you to understand this is the world you live in and why we're like that. And actually, if you, if you, hadn't, if you weren't away, uh, if you weren't around a couple of weeks ago uh, and you haven't listened to it, please listen to the one on, on, on culture. But if you were there, you'd probably think, oh, I can see resonance of our culture in some of the stuff that's described in Genesis. Okay, so let's go to work. The, the Bible, the first verse in the Bible is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. This is a story, it start, the Bible starts, this is a story about heaven and earth. Heaven is where God dwells, it's not a location. Heaven is where God dwells and earth is where we dwell. That's the story, it's heaven and earth. And it says at the start, uh, when God created the heavens and the earth, they were formless 
and empty. Those two words are going to come bouncing back through the story. Formless and empty. In fact, if, you, uh, if you've never thought of it this way, and I think that's why it's written in a seven-day... I don't believe in seven-day creation. <sighs> Shoot me now. I don't believe in a seven-day creation. I think it's a, a picture of how God created the world. Uh, but I think that the, the, the poetic on the literary structure of it is fantastic. You can dig into it. I could have given you hours on it. I was cutting it out and leaving it on the, in my other document, you know, the kind of waste document. But look about this. The story of Genesis is in six days. The first three days, uh, God is doing forming. He's taking uh, the chaos and, and bringing order. So the first day, he, he separates light and dark. The second day, he separates the heavens or the sky or the firmament from the waters below. The third day, he separates land and sea. So he's forming. He's saying, I'm going to bring some, from, some order. And then the, third, the next three days, he's doing... Um, Filling. He's taking the stuff that he's separated and filling it with stuff. So he takes the, the sky and fills it with the sun and the moon and the stars. And then he takes the, the waters and he fills it with fish and birds. And then he takes the land and fills it, uh, and the air, uh, sorry, the land and the sea, and he, he separates animals and stuff like that. And he fills it. So that's what's going on. Okay, hold that thought. The, the, on, the, and the, on the sixth day, this is where we make our appearance. It says, then God said, let us, interesting, I put that in inverted commas, you've probably heard that before, let us make Adam in our image, in our likeness. So God created Adam in his own image, and in the image of God he created them, male and female. Actually, it's not and, there's no and in there, it's just male, female. In the Hebrew, there's no and or or, it's just male, female, two categories. You probably think, now, could you talk about two categories? We'll talk about that this week. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful. I talked about that at the dedication. Be fruitful, have kids. Increase in number and, say these words. Fill the earth and form it. That actually, sometimes that word gets translated, subdue it. So in other words, what happens is that, that God, God creates humanity in his image. We're made in the image of God. We're made for community. God is an ours, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfectly united in love, in oneness. And he makes, he makes humanity in his image. He, he, he kind of, from uh, the, the, the kind of overhead view from Genesis 1, he makes man and woman in his image. And as I said a few weeks ago, that image identity is not formed it's not found in the self or constructed in the self, but is a gift to the self from God. In other words, right at the beginning of the story, you're, we are told who we are. We're made in the image of God, and actually there's a kind of male and female togetherness, and, and I thought Adam spoke brilliantly last week on singleness, but there's a male and female togetherness that's meant to form and fill the earth. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, the whole value of human life that we take for granted in, in what we co would call our kind of humanistic culture comes from this. It comes from a Judeo-Christian tradition about men and women made in the image of God. I think Naomi, when she went to India one time, uh, described how uh, she saw an accident, a road accident, or, so, or maybe somebody went to India told me this story, saw a road accident by the side of the road. And people just drove on by. And you could say, well, that's just because there's so many people, it doesn't matter, that stuff happens all the time. Yeah, fair enough. But there's a, in, in Hinduism, there's this kind of sense of, let's karma, life just happens, you can come back in, in a better or worse form. 
Whereas in a Christian, due to a Christian culture, if there's a road accident, everyone stops. We think that's a person. It's because we think that's a person of intimate value, of intimate worth made in the image of God. So we're made in the image of God, which gives us our identity, but we're also made in community. And, and, and you might think that you're unique because of the job you do. You know, no one does Tom Benham's very, very incredible school teaching, PE teaching job, and he's the only one who could do that, and he's pretty well skilled for that. But actually, the reality, that doesn't, is not what makes Tom unique. What makes Tom unique is the network of relationships that he's in. No one else fills that space. Someone else can do his job, but no one else can be, a, be the son to, uh, of, his, uh, of his mom and dad. No one else can be that person. So we're made in community, and we're made in the image of God. And, and then you get, a, that, if you get Genesis 1 is like the, the satellite image view. Genesis 2 is like the street view. We get a different camera angle, and it says this about the man and the woman. It says, then God formed, oh, there's that word again, a man from the dust of the earth. Actually, the word earth in Hebrew is Adama. All right, it's interesting. We're getting like, this, this is the man from the earth we're making. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, or filled him, you could say, with his spirit. And the man, Adam, there it is, becomes a living being. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden, and there he put the man who he had made to form it and work it. So we get the, so we get the, get the Adam made, kind of formed out of the dust of the earth, put into a garden to work it. Now, what, the, what was the, can you remember what he was asked to do? What were, in Genesis 1, what was he asked to do? I've kind of told you the two words, but you can repeat them back to me just to see you're listening. What, what, were the, what were they supposed to do? Be fruitful and increase and fill the earth and form it. Now there's a problem. So, so Adam could get on doing what God had done. He's kind of said God had started a garden, God had planted a garden. Adam was supposed to get on with it, but there was a problem. He could have sort of done a little bit of gardening on his own. And I don't know about you, gardening is about bringing order to chaos. So if anybody wants to bring order to the chaos that is my backyard, please come and do that. But, you know, there's, gardening is about bringing order to chaos. But actually, he, to do the whole earth, the whole idea was that the project, the whole project was going to be rolled out to the whole earth. Uh, to do that, he, he, there was a problem. And Genesis 2 says this. But for Adam... It talks about, sometimes it says that there wasn't a helper, but that helper would maybe be better to say there was no one who could come alongside. Uh, we, it's the same word we use for the Holy Spirit, it comes alongside. For, for Adam, no one could come, uh, uh, who could come alongside was found. He obviously checks out the animals thought, no, they ain't going to get it done. And then the Lord caused the man to fall in a deep sleep, and he took one of his ribs from the man's side and closed up the place. Then the Lord formed a woman he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man and the man said, whoa, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. What does, what does God do to Adam? A bit like he did with the heaven and earth and the sky, he separates him. Yeah? We saw that through the story. God separates Adam so that, that, that later they're going to be joined together. That, that this, there's this separating to be joined together. Adam and Eve are going to be joined together so they can form and fill the earth. Now, this is controversial now. And you might think, oh, hang on a minute, but I think it just needs saying. Our biology reflects that narrative. The forming and filling that needs to be done. 
Now Adam and Eve, Adam could do the for, the, could do a bit of forming on his own. He couldn't do any filling. He couldn't kind of fill the earth with, with little Adam and Eve's on his own. Uh, he needed to join together with his wife to do that. And so what happens is we, we can see actually that forming and filling are supposed to be the jobs that men and women do together. This is where it's a little controversial. I think there are differences in, in, between men and women. There are differences between men and women. It, 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 you know, whether we like it or not, it's true. And we'll talk about it next week, but this whole debate about should trans men be able to run in, in female sport? It's this battle between you know, the physical, obvious physical biology. Why is, that not, why is Sharon Davis up in arms about it? Because men are bigger and stronger. And they said, oh, you just take less testosterone for a couple of years and you'll be fine. But she's up in arms and she said, that's the end of female sport. Because men are bigger and stronger. Why are we bigger and stronger? I suggest because we're supposed to do the gardening. In that sense of forming the world. Yeah? Now you might immediately think, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute, you sexist. And women, let's face it, have a primary role in filling. Do you see that? There is gender that's about forming and filling the earth, taking God's big project to shape and form the earth, fill it with his blessing. Men take a primary, not the sole role. It doesn't mean men have to do all the shaping of culture and things. And women can't do any of that. You know, Marie Curie would tell us that. You know, great women who've done great stuff would tell us that. And, but, but, but let's face it, women take the primary role in, in, in filling the earth, but it doesn't mean men can do nothing, just go to work and not be involved. But there's a partnership together, there's gender roles. So the Bible, the Bible can go, yes, the Bible talks about sex differences. There are biological differences in this story. But gender stereotypes are not in the Bible. It nowhere says in the Bible that women have got to play with, that girls have got to play with dolls or wear pink. You know, we have it. It's funny, I was listening to a, a, a talk that Christopher pointed me to, and he says, you know, what it is about, like, church kind of men's and women's activities? It's like, men's activities, what do men's activities conclude of? They include, they like, they have kind of beer and spicy food, and we don't talk about anything, Yeah? And women's activities, and we're not so bad in this church, the guy said women's activities, well, you know, they, they have craft. <laughs> and, and they have a speaker about something meaningful. Okay, we have croissants and a speaker about Why do we do that? I think there's sometimes that we just expect them to, to, to people, to, to men and women, to be that way. So we expect men to be rubbish at conversation and women to be great at conversation. So, you know, you have a church picnic and the men are all supposed to go do sports. And if a guy wants to talk with all the women, you think, well, is he a flirt or has he got some sort of, you know, some sort of struggle with his gender? You know, what's the problem? You know, if a woman wants to play, like my daughter would want to play football with the guys, what's the matter with her? She, she, you know, she, you know. And, and we, so the Bible says, yes, there's biological differences, but what's happened is, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on in the story, that, that those, those differences have been double-clicked and made into really unhelpful gender stereotypes. 
And so what happens is sometimes we forget. So in this church, we'd say there's certain, there's certain roles that are reserved for men. There's like one role only in terms of eldership. Why do we do that? I don't like that. The culture doesn't feel good about that. But in one sense, the Bible sort of suggests that there's, there's a role that, that, that's there for women, for men. But that doesn't mean, and Naomi was saying this to me this morning, not because she'd read my PowerPoint, but she was just saying it because some, we went out for dinner last night uh, with, actually with Paul and Molly, give them a name check. Went out with Paul and Molly, and, and Molly was saying, there's some great strong women in this church. And I thought, there is. There's women who can lead and can do stuff. So we don't want to stereotype, but there's certain roles that are different. And, 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 the, and the Bible does it. And you've got to kind of understand the story, otherwise you feel it's difficult. So let's just kind of sum up what we got to. So heaven and earth were together. What was the place, what was the name of the garden where heaven and earth overlapped? Eden. There was a place where God walked with men in the garden. There was a kind of overlap of heaven and earth. And what, how, and this is where you, you know, we won't answer this question, slightly rhetorical. There's gonna, there was gonna be an overlap between men and women to fill the earth. Sex was this imaging of God's relationship with us. Heaven, where God dwells, earth, where we dwell, overlapped. God and man, God and humanity walked together, man and woman overlap doing the stuff that God had called them to do. This is why a man leaves, it says Jesus, actually Jesus quotes this in Matthew, but it's in Genesis 2. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and the two become one. That's that oneness that's right at the beginning about God is and ours are oneness. And interesting, this, these relationships of men and women were fine. It says Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. We feel shame when we're naked. They didn't. There was a something about the nature of their intimacy that was different from it is now. And almost something's gone wrong. I was, oh, let me tell this story. It's crazy. I once went canoeing. <laughs> I went canoeing. I shouldn't tell this story, should I? No, no. It wasn't any bad about me. Now I'm thinking, you're thinking, what on earth? We went canoeing down the Ardèche in France. And it's like, you're great, you're canoeing. The men and the women are canoeing. It's okay, men and women can canoe. And whatever, and like on the one side of you canoe this, on the one side there's this nudist camp. <laughs> it's like, this is all wrong. And all these men and women are walking around nude. And then there's one bit where there's like this rapids. And this guy is just kind of standing there on this rock where the rapids are. Anyway, everyone's like, whoa, this is really awkward. All the boats are capsizing, thousands of French people all over the place. And you think, this is wrong. Because something's gone wrong with our view of nakedness and sex, and I'm not saying the answer is let's go to be nudists. <laughs> Flip, better say that. The answer is something's gone wrong with the world, Mama. Something's gone wrong with sex. Sex is fractured. Why? Let's read the story. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden. We said that. And Jesus is in the garden. He's represented by the tree of life. But what happens uh, is... And actually, if you read through the Bible, Jesus kind of pops up, or God as a tree that gives life pops up. And, and, you know, Jesus says, you know, my father, I am the vine. You're the branches. There's a sense of, there's a tree that gives life. Right uh, in, in, in Psalms, it says there's a tree planted by the rivers of life that gives fruit in its season. And then right at the end of the Bible, it talks about that there's a tree of life. Jesus, the tree of life, says Spurgeon, who, who gives us life. It's almost like there's a, there's a choice here that humanity's made out of the dust, a choice that's made. And they've kind of, I presume there's been intimate by this point. 
And they're supposed to choose relationship and intimacy with Jesus. But they don't. There's a tempter in the garden who turns Eve's head. We're betrothed to Jesus, but we're enticed away to eat forbidden fruit. Even the very, you know, Google's a funny thing because it tells you a lot about cultural, culture, doesn't it? If you Google images of forbidden fruit, you don't want to go there. It's not like well, a forbid, forbidden fruit because it has sexual overtones. So what's about to happen is about humanity, but it has massive sexual overtones because we're definitely part of who we are. We're sexual beings. To, just so you just know I'm not making up, and I've, I've used this passage before, and I think it's so, so true. Paul writes about this situation. He says, Paul says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. So in other words, God is jealous for us. He want, you know, jealousy is a good thing. Don't get me wrong, jealousy is not a bad thing. If my wife went off with someone else, I would be jealous. That would be a good thing. She's not going to do that, but I would be jealous. I'm jealous for my faithfulness, our faithfulness together. It's okay for God to say, I'm a jealous God, because he wants our relationship, and he, he hates it when we go off, but I digress. You were promised to one husband, to Christ. That's what Adam said so beautifully last, uh, last week. That means if you're single, you're still married if you're a Christian. You're married to him. So I might present you as a pure virgin. That's like a, 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 a the, the term is a maiden who's never been given or promised to anyone else. But you're promised to him. He says you were promised to him. But I'm afraid just as Eve was deceived by the serpents coming in, your minds might somehow be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Already we've got an idea that, that men and women in their intimacy is part of this bigger picture. And what happens next is almost like you can, you can hear the, the, the ripples, the echoes of what I talked about in, in culture. But can you remember what the, what the big two-word term that I used, if you were here, for, for the kind of the way our culture sees sex and how it talks about itself? Expressive individualism. Remember that? Expressive individualism, which means that instead of finding my value from outside, from authorities or structures from outside, I find it from within. Expressive individualism. We talked and hinted a little bit about consumerism. Consumerism is, I want that, I'll take it to be satisfied. Those two things are right here in the story. Because the tempter says, if you take that, you'll, know, you'll be like God, and you'll be able to define what's right and wrong. You'll be able to self-define, self-construct what's right and wrong. That's what we see in the sexual revolution. It's what we see in, our, in, in the nation. We're self-deciding what's right and wrong. And it's almost this sense if we take and eat and be filled, that we'll suddenly be happy. We'll suddenly be satisfied. We'll be like God. I wrote, Adam and Eve grasp and eat. We reject Jesus and choose autonomy. What's autonomy mean? Make your own decisions. Auto, autonomy, self-rule. We choose self-rule. 
We reject Jesus and choose autonomy. We choose self-determination. We choose to be free, to be truly ourselves. That is the culture we're in right now. You might think this is a fairy story. It's a pretty profound fairy story. This is the culture we're in right now. It's a lie. Heaven and earth fractures. Paradise is lost. It's kind of like the, the, the garden's lost. The place where God and man meet together is lost, separated. Paradise is lost. That's the, the, the title by, 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 a guy, a poet, by a guy called Milton who talked about this is what happened when we decided we didn't want God. Heaven and earth are separated. Paradise is lost. And marriage is messed up. So I know that we like to think that marriage is perfect. It ain't. It's broken. You have to work at it. It's broken because if you're married, you're in it. It's marred and messed up. We see a little bit of this in Genesis. Adam blames Eve. He says, you know the problem? He says, that woman that you gave me, God, she's the one. And then what happens is, instead of forming a culture of blessing in God's image, be fruitful, increase, bless the earth, fill it and form it with blessing, we get this culture of grasping and selfishness, endlessly empty, trying to self-determine ourselves. And guess what? It blows into marriage. The man grasping creates a culture, rather than blessing his wife, he rules harshly over her. And it says, and the woman responds by kind of fighting. And you've got this, you know, if you're married and you've never had a row, could you tell me what the secret is? Because I suspect you're either denying yourself, that you're either stuffing or, you know, what, what it is, because you, you row, don't you? Now, I'm not suggesting that's the biblical picture of marriage. I'm just saying, why do we row? Because I'm, I'm selfish and inattentive. Naomi comes back from work and she wants me to talk to her and I'm just on my screen. Well, I've got every really important sermon to talk to. And she says, well, you never talk to me. And I said, well, you, know, you don't understand my pressure. I've got to form this church. I've got to, you know, and we get all this. And, you know, do you not have that? We got the breakup. Marriage is busted. Sex is busted. Adam and Eve's eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, covering themselves. Sam Albury, who's, who, the sermon that, that Christopher pointed me to, says this so, 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 so profound. We feel not the euphoria. Euphoria is this ecstatic excitement when we reach fulfillment. Euphoria. But we feel dysphoria fragmentation and breaking apart. And I know we're going to talk about it next week, we're going to talk about gender dysphoria. Actually, it's not just people who, who you know, people who struggle with that, I'm, we're not pointing the finger, you feel it. You feel a sense of dysphoria, you feel a sense of not quite at ease with your body, I'm too fat, I'm too thin, the whole kind of anorexia and eating disorders is like this kind of demonstration. I mustn't preach next week's sermon, but it's like a, a demonstration that, that I, I, I feel this, but my body says this, and I feel unease about it. 
we're trying to make our bodies different. We're trying to, if I was better looking, then my life would be happy. If I was fitter and faster, then better looking. And, and if I was this and this and this, and if I wasn't getting old, and if I wasn't 59, and if I wouldn't have a bad hip, then I'd be happy. What happens, we're not going to unpack this passage, but what happens is that, that, that we exchange the truth of God for a lie, it says in Romans. It says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped, worship's important, we'll come back to that in a minute, worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity. Who's they? Humanity. I remember one time uh, somebody phoning up and saying, those homosexuals were... Reading this thing, on the, reading this... This passage, because it goes on to talk about homosexuality, reading this passage and pointing fingers and saying, they, 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 they. They is us. Our sexuality is broken in so, so many ways. Jesus talked about a sexual ethic of one man, one woman, exclusively forever. This conference speaker, I've adapted what he said from, from a tape, says this. Sean McDowell says this, talking about a broken world. Imagine a world in which everybody lived according to what Jesus taught about sex and marriage. There'd be no brokenness from divorce. Not, by the way, when, we, when I mention these things, I'm not pointing the finger and saying, those people that got divorced, they're bad. What I'm saying is, this is a broken, fallen world. Every child will be raised by their biological parents and sprays to the love and acceptance a mother and father uniquely offers. I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. There'll be no sexually transmitted diseases. No abortion. No sex trafficking. We won't have to go out into Cheltenham with leaflets and donuts and saying, do you know what happens in the Airbnbs? No pornography and sexual abuse. No rape, no... Sorry, sexual addiction. No rape, no sexual abuse. No need for a Me Too campaign. There'll be no church sex abuse scandals. No politicians denying paying porn stars or sacrificing hard-won careers for brief sexual liaisons. No parent would have to fear leaving their children in the care of others or fear allowing them to play in the community. The list goes on and on. Thinking of the healing and think of the healing and wholeness if people simply Jesus live Jesus' life-giving words regarding human sexuality. It's true, eh? Oh, you think it's far too simplistic? It's actually profoundly true. We could talk about loads of things that means that the sex in the world is broken, but, but what about this one? The rising tide of pornography. I've got three quotes for you. Shocking. Sociologist Christian Smith said this, we declare sex itself as king. You can be like God. But as sovereign individuals, we lack direction, conviction, or purpose. This is like downward spiral. We value it fr freedom, but we're confused about what to do with it. We value information or principles, but we have no lens to, to view it or principles to organize it. We value choice, but keeping our options open means we're filled with the easy rush of pornography. And I want sexual consumerism, uncommitted relationships, and the next. 
big thing. There's loads we could say about pornography, but what, what even culture admits is it impact, impacts kids. It impacts kids. It impacts you if you're older. If you're over 18, it impacts you, you know, are you 18? But if you're under 18, this is shocking. This was out of the book that I mentioned, A Better Image, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Studies report a range of 36 to 99%, 43, sorry, percent to 99% for childhood exposure to pornography, with rates for boys rising between 83% and 100%. The first exposure to porn for young people is between 9 and 12. I've had teenagers. Young people are not simply viewing images. They're being educated by them. Besides porn's explicit messages about the essentially hedonistic and self-serving meaning of sex. In other words, instead of being giving, it's about self-serving. Minds are being formed around the treatment of people as sex objects. And our society doesn't really care. It's trying to bring in an age limit, but it doesn't understand that, that, that the way that we've just decided to make up the sex rules ourselves uh, we make a, 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 I mean, it's an epidemic. Porn has always been around, but it's an epidemic. Mobile phones have created an epidemic of, of porn. People in here will not be immune. Survey in, uh, uh, in US, it's always US churches that do surveys, bless them. But survey in US churches, uh, anonymous survey, 75% of blokes in this evangelical US churches had struggled with porn. William Struthers, who's a, um, a sociologist as well, and this is a complicated quote, so hopefully I'll read it well. He says, the one, may, one way neurological dopamine, that's kind of like a, dopamine is a, a chemical that you get like from, uh, from, from a high. You get it from a sexual high, you, you get it from winning the Grand Slam, if you're a Welsh rugby player, you, you get these buzz. Neurological dopamine superhighway created by viewing pornography. Superhighway is talking about the kind of linkages in your brain that just want to go there. Created by viewing pornography have many on-ramps, but no off-ramps. So easy to get on the porn highway it's messing with your brain and feeding dopamine to you saying you want this you want this you want this but he says there's no off ramps pornography so shapes its users plastic brains tripping trapping them in sexual dissatisfaction and impotency men who view porn are not good lovers we won't go more detail than that Rippling out as marriages are torn apart and family life is tossed away. 56% of divorce cases in the US involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. Sex is bust. So Jesus becomes flesh to join us to himself as his bride. This is what it says in Isaiah, for the, your maker is your husband. 
God who created us, created us to be in intimacy with him. The Lord, the Holy One of Israel is his name. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so God rejoices over you. I love these quotes. Glenn Harrison talking about sex. God designed us, our, our desire for sex, the ecstasy we find in sex, and the sense of oneness we achieve in sex to be a picture of paradise. Heaven joined to earth. The longings for intimacy and our deepest desires, including our most earthly bodily longings for intimacy, connect with the promises of heaven as creatures made in the image of God. We love like this because the one in whose image we made loves like this. We are longing creatures because we long for him. Sex images our spiritual longing, our ultimate ecstasy and joy-defining oneness that we find in Jesus. Glenn Harrison, he said, he said, even as I wrote that quote, I thought, it's pushing it too far. Because what's happened is we've taken sex and, as Christians, pushed it in the corner and say we don't talk about it. But society says it's fundamental to who we are. And he's saying, I've realised that, and I realise that, that, that those longings that can be expressed in a marriage between a man and woman, actually are bigger longings that we all have. I love this from Song of Solomon. All night long on my bed I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him but did not find him. It's talking about us and God. All night long on my bed I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him but I did not find him. I will get up now and go about the streets and through the city and through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but I did not find him. The watchman found me as I made their rounds. Have you seen the one my heart loves? I cried. Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go until I brought him to myself. That is sexual but it's a sense of I want Jesus it's him or I want and the reality is we separate the two because we feel that sex is real and concrete and intimate and, and relationship with Jesus is far away Glenn Harrison again and then I will need to stop and we'll just have to say pause and go next week God is not embodied as we are so it's not about you're supposed to have sex with God here he doesn't have a body so of course elements of this are metaphorical but in the Bible's portrait of the intensity of delight and pleasure that God... It, but it's a, a portrayal of the intensity and delight and pleasure that God feels towards us. As if nothing else but sex will do. So human erotic sexual desire is a picture of God's love for us. And we need to look into our sexuality to understand his love fully. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.